This episode of In Good Company is brought to you by Fourth Estate Books, who publish some of the finest writers in the world today, including Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Hilary Mantel, Nigel Slater, Elizabeth Day, and me. My new book, We Need to Talk About Money, is being published by Fourth Estate on the 8th of July and is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio, with signed copies available from waterstones.com. It's been described as a beautiful, searingly personal account of a world defined by money, full of courage and truth-telling by the political journalist Owen Jones, while writer and podcast Elizabeth Day has described it as a must-read and a brilliant book that moved, amused, challenged, and made me reevaluate my own relationship with money. We Need to Talk About Money is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio, with signed copies available from waterstones.com. Thank you very much to Fourth Estate Books. Hello and welcome back to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Ategi Wagba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. I am so excited to bring you this season because it's all about one of my favourite topics and a topic that's relevant to absolutely everyone, no matter their age, job, background, whatever. It is, of course, about money. To coincide with the publication of my book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is out next week, every episode in this eight-part season is me speaking to various women about their relationships with and experiences of money and having those honest conversations that I think we're all dying to have but often don't get to. We're going to be talking about everything from debt and overspending to renting and home ownership, girl boss culture and the influencer economy, negotiating your pay, how to talk about money with the people in your lives. You name it, we're getting into it. I also use this season to explore some of the emotions that come along with money. Fear, shame, pride, envy... And the women I speak to also offer a ton of really insightful advice that I hope will encourage you to think more deeply about your relationship with money and provide you with some clarity in that respect. If you don't know much about my book, We Need to Talk About Money, here's a little overview. It's a part memoir, part cultural commentary, exploring my experiences with money over the years and what those experiences say more generally about our relationships with money and our position in society, particularly as that relates to women. So it's a mixture of the personal, stories from my childhood, adolescence and professional life, but it also touches on a lot of bigger issues, from class and privilege to feminism and race, beauty standards, toxic workplaces, how money can affect friendships, and above all, how people's experiences of those things might differ and impact their lives. My aim in writing this book, which I've been working on for the past three years but thinking about for much longer, was to give a name and a voice to emotions and feelings and dynamics that I think most people either have or will encounter at some point in their lives. It's really about undoing the shroud of secrecy around money, which impacts all of us, often without our really being aware of it. It's super honest, probably a little too honest, but I hope that that honesty will be illuminating and encourage people who read the book to talk about and challenge who has money, how they got it, why they got it, who doesn't, how that came to be, and how those differences affect us all. You can pre-order it now in hardback, ebook, and audio, with signed copies available from waterstones.com, and I've linked to all those retailers in the show notes. 
Pre-orders are vitally important to the overall success of a book for various complicated publishing industry reasons that I won't bore you with here, but I'd so appreciate if you did place a pre-order. In fact, pause this episode right now, go online to your favourite bookstore and pre-order We Need to Talk About Money. Done it? Okay, great. To give you a little taster of what to expect from We Need to Talk About Money, this week's episode is an exclusive extract from the audiobook, which I narrated myself, just FYI. It's a slightly shortened version of the first chapter, which is all about my childhood and teenage years, going to a private school, and the early money lessons I learned during that period of my life. Enjoy. Chapter 1. Scholarship Kid I arrived in London on a rainy September morning, goose-pimple-pricked flesh buried deep under a thick scarf and woolen tights, eyes wide in disbelief at the relentless greyness of it all. Then and now, London seemed to me a city inexplicably enamoured of the colour grey and determined to celebrate it in every one of its joyless permutations. Everywhere I looked, there it was glaring back at me, this never-ending parade of grey. Grey buildings, grey skies, grey streets, grey everything. September 1995. In the time-honoured tradition of countless immigrants before them, my parents had packed up their lives in Nigeria and come to the UK with their young family in tow. Me, aged five, and my two older sisters, S and C, who were eight and nine years old. Given how young I was when we arrived, most of what I know of those early months are things my parents have since told me, as my own memories have mostly faded into a patchwork of half-remembered fragments, a pattern, a taste, a smell. My sisters, my mother and I came first, with my dad only able to join us a while later, which meant that for the first six months, my mother had the unenviable task of making ends meet while single-handedly raising three young children and trying to figure out an unfamiliar and at times unforgiving system. The four of us spent those first few months crowded into a one-bedroom council flat with faded rose-pink carpet that had been worn to grey in the spots where a thousand footsteps had trodden before. Though we didn't exactly depend on the kindness of strangers, we certainly benefited from it. That pink-carpeted lodging came courtesy of an older cousin who had readily vacated his own flat to crash at a friend's so that we could make use of his place while we found our feet. It was this cousin, too, who stepped in to look after me and C one evening, after S had suffered an asthma attack so severe that my mother had raced with her to the nearest emergency room. She returned home hours later, exhausted, to find a freshly made lasagna waiting for her, and two well-fed daughters oblivious to the drama of her evening. Then there was the office admin who took pity on my mother having to ferry each of us to different primary schools while we waited for places to become available for all three of us at the same school slyly bumping us up the waiting list, so that within a few months, my mother only had to make one drop-off before going to work, instead of three. Eventually, we found a place of our own, the five of us taking up residence in a slightly bigger council flat, a few miles from where we'd initially settled. Money was still tight, but with a specific brand of resourcefulness seemingly innate to immigrant families on a budget, over the years we made that little rented flat our own. My meticulously house-proud mother turned fabrics bought at the local market into sweeping floor-to-ceiling curtains and filled every corner of the flat with a cornucopia of carefully maintained plants. Meanwhile, my father was enlisted to paint our bathroom an encouraging shade of sunshine yellow 
and put up shelves in the pastel pink bedroom I shared with S. C, being the oldest, had a room to herself. Bit by bit we accumulated the various souvenirs of family life, until eventually every surface was filled with ceramics and decorative mugs and the gap-toothed school photos that my parents insisted on buying each year. I still remember the collective pride when we could finally afford to have our carpets replaced with wood laminate flooring, which, my mother pointedly informed us all, would be much easier to clean. It's always tricky to make firm assertions about how much money is enough, given what a subjective benchmark that is. But the simple fact is that in those early years, we did not have enough. Only in adulthood did my father reveal to me his anguish over the time he'd realised my parents couldn't afford a new pair of school shoes to replace the ones I'd outgrown, prompting me to cheerfully inform them that we were poor as church mice, a notion I'm sure held far more excitement for me than it did for them, rendered in my child's imagination with a touch of Dickensian romance. Even still, my childhood felt plentiful, rich even. During the summer holidays, my sisters and I would play outside for hours, hopscotching across cracks in the pavement and swinging from the branches of the overgrown willow that stood stoically in the middle of our estate, seemingly resigned to its fate as a makeshift climbing frame. We'd take it in turns to ride the pink bike our parents had bought us and count out our pennies for corner shop excursions, working out how many maoams our funds could stretch to on the way there and singing the jingle from the TV ad on the way back. When the weather turned cool and autumn set in, I'd rush home from school, impatient for the straight-from-the-oven sausage rolls and sugary cups of tea I knew were waiting for me, to be consumed while watching the animals of farthing wood. There was the joy, verging on mania, that ensued when I opened a carefully wrapped package one Christmas morning to find the Spice World cassette tape, the casing of which was promptly broken in the melee that followed. The family holiday taken in a caravan by the sea, where one night we simply ordered a Chinese takeaway and listened to the rain lashing down outside sleepy and sated from the tang of hoisin. Young and oblivious, I never noticed the drug dealers loitering on the stairwell leading up to our flat that my father assures me were a regular late-night fixture. I was ten when Damalola Taylor, a Nigerian boy the same age as me, was stabbed and killed on a Peckham estate in an act of such violent obscenity that it dominated the headlines for months afterwards. One child killed by two others, Danny and Ricky Preddy. All three of their names would become shorthand for the perils of council estate life. Even at that young age, I noticed how that news story in particular seemed to commandeer my parents' attention, temporarily suspending conversation whenever it appeared on the seven o'clock news. But it's only now that I'm older that I've begun to fully understand why. Like mine, Damalola's parents had left Nigeria for the UK in search of the fabled better life, only to have their child cruelly snatched from them on a housing estate not two miles from ours. The image splashed across nightly news bulletins and newspaper pages for months after Damalola's death. A school photo in which he could be seen smiling sweetly out at the camera could easily have been one from my family's mantelpiece. Still, things slowly improved for us over the years, my parents working tirelessly to make our lives more comfortable. I was ten when we were finally able to afford a car, my dad surprising us by arriving home one afternoon and beckoning us out onto the balcony that overlooked our estate, pointing out a second-hand Toyota that was now, unbelievably, ours. Before that, car journeys had always felt to me like a sublime luxury, given how infrequently they occurred. The occasional lift from visiting friends, or a rare minicab ride if the supermarket shop was too heavy to carry home by bus. 
We spent the rest of that afternoon cruising around the local area, and for months afterwards, my dad was able to leverage my excitement at the novelty of having a car into getting me to help him wash it on Sunday afternoons. My parents made sure my sisters and I always had everything we needed, and most of the things we wanted too. From a new school bag and a fresh supply of stationery at the start of each school year, to the latest CDs and the metallic blue rollerblades that became my pride and joy. We were always, always immaculately turned out, my mother viewing our personal presentation as an extension of hers, and never failing to deploy a strategic elbow nudge if ever she spotted us slouching. Under her tutelage, I took to methodically ironing a fresh shirt each morning before school, a habit I carried with me all the way to university, where it was, of course, swiftly jettisoned. My childhood was a revolving door of piano, violin, gymnastics and tennis lessons, all procured at low cost thanks to various community organisations that my mum had found, and all of which I unceremoniously abandoned one after the other. But as hard as my parents tried to make money a non-issue in our lives, from an early age I sensed that it was. Little pictures have big ears, as the saying goes. When it came to money... I couldn't help but absorb the pressure my parents were under in trying to provide for three daughters who churned through an endless cycle of new wants and needs. I noticed everything. The way my mother would grumble about the cost of fruit at the local market, going to multiple stalls to get things at a marginally lower price, even if it ended up taking us twice as long, or the way she furrowed her brow if the £20 she topped up the gas meter with seemed to have run out more quickly than usual. Whenever I accompanied either of my parents to the supermarket for the weekly shop, I'd pay careful attention to the figure that appeared on screen at the checkout, my eyes flicking to theirs if it seemed unexpectedly high, searching their face for a reaction. I was painfully aware of money, and how it worked, and that it was not infinite. Even though I harboured the same desire for new clothes and toys as most children, I'd feel incredibly guilty if something I wanted, or worse, needed required my parents to spend what I deemed to be an inordinate sum of money, and so I learned to self-regulate between what I wanted and what I thought my parents could afford. I was never the child who begged for a Nintendo or an expensive pair of trainers, because I knew intuitively that those things were beyond our means. Sometimes late at night, I'd hear my parents talking about money, the low hum of their tense conversations filtering through my bedroom wall as I strained to hear what was being said. In my presence, they'd often switch to Yoruba, so that they might have otherwise private conversations publicly. And though I couldn't understand exactly what they were saying, it was easy enough to decipher their money worries from their body language alone. The message I absorbed was this, that money was something to be wrangled, to be twisted and stretched into place, an adversary one had to be vigilant around, lest it caught you out and put you in danger. One of the most formative influences in our relationship with money is, unsurprisingly, the relationship our parents have with it. Most of us learn about money, or not, from our parents, inheriting their beliefs, behaviours and anxieties as surely as we inherit their genes. This is what psychologists call financial socialisation, the process by which we construct both our conceptual and emotional understanding of money. Perhaps you grew up in a household where money was never talked about, and to this day it remains an indecipherable mystery to you. You never learned how it worked, or about key financial concepts. No parental wisdom about budgets and saving handed down to you over the dinner table, in between lectures about chewing with your mouth closed and not playing with your food. Perhaps your parents lavished you with expensive presents and toys as a way of demonstrating their love, 
And now, as an adult, that is how you too show affection to those you hold dear. A scenario that, at its best, makes you a generous friend or partner, the one who always gets around in, and at its worst, makes you someone easily exploited by the people around you. Perhaps money was tight growing up, but your parents felt compelled to keep up appearances, and now your relationship with money revolves around how you appear to the outside world. You guiltily rack up thousands of pounds worth of credit card debt on expensive clothes and Instagrammable holidays, because deep down how wealthy others perceive you to be matters more to you than your financial reality. Our parents' relationships with money very often become ours, though the manifestation of those influences can at times be more oblique. Think of the child from an impoverished background who grows up to be a millionaire, spending extravagantly because, finally, they can, only to be dismissed as nouveau riche. In my case, the pattern was fairly linear, my parents' caution sowing the seeds for a similar wariness in me. I developed a latent anxiety around money, though that wouldn't bear fruit until many years later, when I was at liberty to decide how to manage my own finances. I was an incredibly bright child, something that might seem rather boastful to announce so unreservedly, were it not a fact that would direct how the rest of my childhood played out. I'd learned to read by the age of three, fascinated by my older sister's mastery of what to me seemed like the coolest magic trick in the world, and demanding that my mother teach me as well. By the time I arrived in London, aged five, my school teachers reported to my parents that it wasn't a question of whether or not I could read, but rather which books I hadn't yet read, given how frequently I'd be presented with a book at school, only to declare that I'd already read it at home. I was consistently at the top of my class, and so far advanced from my age that one particularly enterprising teacher would occasionally have me mark my classmates' work once I'd finished my own, though, to be fair, this probably said more about the resource challenges she was facing than it did my intelligence. What's more, I actually enjoyed learning. Loved it, in fact. I'd read news stories about child prodigies who'd sat their A-levels early and wonder whether I might be able to do the same, and dreamt of the day I might be invited to take up my place at Mensa with the same enthusiasm that most children await a letter from Hogwarts. I was studious and meticulous, and smart enough to realise how smart I was, basking in the warm glow of praise from teachers and parents alike. I was probably also a little precocious. I was lucky, too, that my parents took an active interest in my education, regarding school as just one facet of many to be deployed in their quest to ensure my sisters and I realised our full potential. While my mother taught us French and borrowed a language course from the local library so she and I could learn Spanish together, my father oversaw my education in maths, shrewdly perfecting a low-involvement, high-yield system. He'd assigned me practice papers that I'd complete, while timing myself, Mark, also myself, using the answers provided at the back of the book, at which point I'd report my score back to him so that I could be congratulated before settling down to complete another paper. I never realised the extra work I did at home was to any specific end. I was nerdy enough to find pleasure and achievement for achievement's sake. But I know now that the stakes for my parents were always high. They knew that being a black, foreign-born immigrant to the UK, my best chance of success would be to have an unimpeachable education, though they were careful never to burden me with the heaviness of that reality. Instead, it was simply made clear to me and my sisters that poor grades would not fly in our household. My parents pushed our teachers as much as they pushed us too, wary of the ease with which black children are overlooked at school and determined that that would not be our lot. 
Countless studies have shown that black students are more likely to be punished or excluded than their white counterparts, with teachers also tending to predict them lower grades than the ones they actually go on to achieve. A long-running family joke is that every teacher my sisters and I ever had soon learned to fear my parents, who never hesitated to write a strongly worded letter or, if the occasion called for it, make an in-person visit to the school gates if they felt some aspect of our educational needs wasn't being met. There were, unfortunately, countless such incidents. When I was around nine or ten years old, a teacher caught me and some friends passing notes in class. A rare episode of misbehaviour on my part. Scribbled on various scraps of paper were a litany of childish grievances, ranging from what we perceived to be the favouritism one of our male teachers displayed towards the boys in our class, to my vehement criticism of another teacher's dishevelled appearance and bad coffee breath. Along with my fellow co-conspirators, I found myself in a world of trouble, stripped of playtime privileges and forced to eat lunch in isolation for the rest of the week. All of our parents were informed. But one teacher, Mrs Layton, who was notorious for the apparent contempt with which she seemed to regard the children she taught, began to single me out, making sly digs and comments whenever we encountered each other. After a few days of this, my parents noticed that I was arriving home from school each afternoon increasingly despondent, and eventually they managed to prize the reason out of me. Ashamed, I tearfully recounted what had been happening, and my parents immediately swung into action. The letter below, which still shocks me to read, was drafted that very evening and addressed to my school's head teacher. Dear Mr Levine, The school secretary has informed us about an incident at school this week involving a tager and some friends passing inappropriate notes. A meeting has been arranged to discuss the matter with her form teacher this coming Friday. In the meantime, we want to bring to your attention some of a tager's experiences at school this week. Number one. On Tuesday 28th, Ms Layton verbally assaulted a tager, ostensibly in reaction to the incident referred to above, saying, Your arrogant parents said we don't adequately challenge you. This must be a direct reference to a request we made of a Tager's form teacher, Mr Stevens, many months ago, not Ms Layton, whom we have never met before. The request was made during the discussion of a Tager's performance and was supposed to be part of a confidential review of her progress and academic achievements at school. We do not feel we should be penalised for making this request. Indeed, we have never been informed that said request was improper. We made that request believing that the quest to enhance the academic progress and performance of our daughter, or any other pupil at the school for that matter, should not be the trigger for unwarranted cynicism. However, it appears this is not the case, and that request has now become the catalyst for a verbal assault on a tager, as implied by the reference to your arrogant parents. Number two. Later on the same day, Ms Layton further verbally assaulted a tager when she described her as being two-faced. We believe this unsavoury remark, which later caused the Tager to burst into tears, was entirely gratuitous. As with the one referred to above, this comment was made in bad taste and as part of a premeditated agenda. Number three. The next day, on Wednesday 29th, and in continuation of the siege on Ataga, Ms Layton confiscated the badge awarded to Ataga as a member of the school council. We are not aware of the capacity in which she acted thus. However, we are of the opinion that even if it was connected to the incident Ataga was previously involved in, Ms Layton's action was premature and her tactic intimidating. After all, the matter had neither been discussed with us nor resolved. 
In any case, Ms Layton did not appoint Ortega to the school council. Her classmates democratically elected her. It is reasonable to expect that, should it have been so decided, there would be a less traumatising and intimidating way of deselecting her as class president. Ms Layton continued her verbal assault of Ortega, telling her, you must think you're a little goddess. Number four. The same Wednesday, just before Ortega and the rest of her classmates were due to go swimming, Ms Layton told her she was barred from going. If Mr Stevens had not intervened, Ortega would have been bullied into submission. We are quite ready to dismiss the reference to us as arrogant parents as malicious and arrant nonsense. We consider it to be part of the hazard of parenting. However, we are unwilling to see Ortega subjected to any further verbal assault, intimidation and bullying by an adult and teacher in the person of Ms Layton, or indeed any other teacher or member of staff. We believe that Ortega is entitled to fair treatment that is compatible with our desire for her emotional stability, well-being and safety whilst at school. We urge you to look into this matter. Carefully printed at the bottom of the two-page missive were both my parents' signatures, and the following morning my father hand-delivered it to the head teacher, arriving at the school office and insisting on an immediate appointment. By lunchtime I'd been reinstated as school counsellor, and Mrs Layton never bothered me again. Looking back on it now, it seems fairly obvious that she'd decided my parents, and by extension I, had become too uppity for her liking, taking it upon herself to put us all back in our place. Unfortunately for her, she had woefully underestimated my parents' ambition for their daughters. The education, education, education mantra first uttered by Tony Blair as he swept to power in 1997 could frequently be heard on my parents' lips, who were thrilled that their belief in the power of a good education had been so succinctly summarised in one of the best-known political soundbites of that era. In a move that has since become part of our family folklore, when the time came for me to apply for secondary school, my oldest sister, C, intervened on my behalf, insisting to my parents that they weren't to send me to the local state school she herself was already attending because she didn't think I'd be sufficiently challenged. Instead, she convinced them to consider sending me to a private school, pointing them in the direction of an elite and highly competitive girl school nestled in the Barbican, attended by the daughters of bankers and barristers, and even, at one point, a prime minister's daughter. Pouring over the school's glossy brochure some weeks later, a burning desire to be part of it ignited in me. It looked like paradise. I flipped past pages outlining the school's dedication to academic excellence and its stellar exam results, past the breathless descriptions of its extensive facilities, a pool, tennis courts, a gym, past pictures of laughing girls by turns conducting science experiments or caught mid-action as they tore across the sports field, Past all of that to the breakdown of tuition fees discreetly tucked away on its final pages. £3,000 a term. How on earth were we to afford that? I knew my family didn't have that kind of money. Tentatively, I brought it up with my parents, who told me not to worry and assured me that if I passed the entrance exams, they would find a way. When I pressed, they shared their hope that perhaps I might win a scholarship, or at least a partial bursary that would enable them to make up the shortfall but I was still worried. I had never wanted something so badly in my life, and the chances of it actually happening seemed slim to none. Arriving for the entrance exams in late autumn, my mother tried to reassure me as we approached the imposing grey building, a concrete structure in the brutalist tradition, and on this day, it seemed, designed to intimidate. It doesn't matter, okay? Just go in there and do your best. 
She sensed I was nervous, my usually confident nature subdued by the gravity of the situation and the hordes of chattering girls I was convinced were smarter, better prepared and more likely to be granted entry than I was. Handing me over to the smiling sick formers who'd been enlisted to help out, how old they seemed, how self-assured. She kissed me goodbye. The first paper, English, seemed to go okay, though afterwards I fretted that my efforts during the creative writing section had veered towards the prosaic. As we waited to be called for our second exam, though, my nerves began to climb, twisting themselves into a painful knot in my stomach. By the time the maths paper came round, then my strongest subject and the one I'd been relying on to carry me through, I was in agony. I raced through the questions, finishing the paper half an hour early, but instead of using that time to go through my answers, as the teacher invigilating kept pointedly advising, I lay my head down on the desk and closed my eyes. It was the only thing that seemed to make the pain go away. Arriving to pick me up at lunchtime, my mother found me even more miserable and despondent than when she'd left me, and reluctant to talk about how I'd done. I'd messed up, and I knew it. She didn't push, and we didn't bring up the exams or the school again. Months later, on a Saturday morning bright with the promise of budding spring, a pile of envelopes slid through our letterbox and landed on the floor. Scooping them up, my mother immediately spotted the school's crest on one of them. As she would later tell me, in life, bad news tends to come in small envelopes, good news in large ones. She held her breath. This envelope, stamped with the school's regal insignia, was a thick brown A4. Inside, miraculously, was a formal letter of acceptance, alongside an offer of a full academic scholarship. I had somehow tested among the top 16 of the 500 or so girls who had sat the school's entrance exams, qualifying me for a scholarship that would cover the entirety of my school fees for the next seven years, right through to sixth form. My mother erupted in a display of uncontrolled joy, unlike anything I'd ever seen from her before or since, yelling in disbelief and then joy and then disbelief again. As for me, I had no idea on that clear spring day of the extent to which my life had just been transformed. My first day at the school saw me encounter Mary, a rather haughty girl who I would later learn was the daughter of a prominent journalist. As we filed into the main hall for our first assembly, she and I fell into polite conversation. Do you live in Islington? No. Hampstead? No. Well, where do you live then? Elephant and Castle. Where's that? South London. She looked confused and wrinkled her nose, before declaring that she'd never been south of the river. I don't know how two 11-year-old girls got onto the subject of cleaners, but we did, and I revealed that no, my family did not have a cleaner. What do you mean you don't have a cleaner? She asked, incredulous, as though I'd told her the house I lived in didn't have a roof or walls. I stared at her, unsure of how to answer. Prior to that moment, it hadn't even occurred to me that having a cleaner was a thing. I didn't know anyone who did. We do it ourselves, I shrugged, and turned to follow the rest of the girls into the hall. In the weeks leading up to that first day, my mother and I had paid a visit to John Lewis, the school's official uniform supplier, having recently taken over that role from Harrods, of all places. We spent what to me seemed like a small fortune, £405, an amount I still remember clearly all these years later. Even the shop assistant serving us protested. 
She won't need the cardigan, the jumper and the sweatshirt. Why don't you come back once she's been there a few weeks and you can see what she's missing? Buy the rest then, she advised. My mother was not in the mood to be advised. Her pride in my having won a scholarship to the school outweighed her usual financial prudence and she insisted on buying every single item on the suggested uniform list, right down to the gym knickers, which I would never once wear. My encounter with Mary was an inauspicious start, but thankfully not an indicative one. I am one of those people who genuinely enjoyed their school days, and in many senses I was lucky. As private schools go, mine turned out to be something of an anomaly, mostly avoiding the atmosphere of social snobbery often rampant within those environments. My being there on a scholarship only marked me out as different in that I was understood to be one of the smart kids. It was never something that I hid or felt embarrassed about. Like many, my teen years were the period where I developed my early aspirations around money and work, and on that front those years left two lasting legacies. My school went to admirable lengths to foster an ardently feminist atmosphere, our teachers impressing on us early and often that women were indisputably equal to, if not better than, men a well-meaning agenda that nonetheless meant I was ill-prepared for the injustices of the working world I'd later encounter. For all their good intentions, that early introduction to feminism didn't much prepare me for the actual reality of workplace sexism, which as a teenager I deduced would be a sort of game where all you had to do to win was work hard. Girls versus boys. It didn't even occur to me that racism would be an issue. That was never discussed. Then there was the school's proximity to the city, which meant we were subject to a steady stream of banking-focused career events. Picture a gaggle of wide-eyed teenage girls being given a tour of, say, the Merrill Lynch trading floor. By the time I was 15, I could expertly reel off a list of all the major investment banks. This was 2006, before the financial crash, when banking didn't have quite the image problem it does now. At one careers event, a few recent alumni were invited back to give talks about their respective industries during a lunchtime session. One had gone into investment banking at one of the big banks, and immediately our collective gaze homed in on her. She was the epitome of what we imagined a successful working woman to be. Glossy and well-groomed, in a smartly tailored skirt suit and vertiginous heels, self-consciously tapping away at her Blackberry the entire time, the better to show off a comet-sized engagement ring. She seemed impossibly grown up, and leaving the assembly hall afterwards, several of us agreed that yes, we too wanted to work in investment banking. It would be churlish of me to complain about my school having encouraged us to aspire to well-paid work, and I'm not. What an immense privilege as a young woman to be steered towards a financially rewarding career, and to have the paths into those industries demystified for you when so many young women experience the very opposite. Still... That focus on banking and other corporate professions only served to skew my assumptions of what the working world would be like, especially when it came to salary expectations. I imagined that by my mid-twenties I'd be pulling in a six-figure salary, and that that sort of salary was perfectly normal. By the time I left school, I'd formed two key conclusions about how my adult years would play out. That I'd necessarily grow up to make lots of money, and that climbing the career ladder as a woman would be a breeze. Suffice to say, I was wrong on both counts. And that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed that audiobook extract, you can pre-order a copy of We Need to Talk About Money Now in hardback, ebook, and audio, with signed copies available from waterstones.com. I've linked to all those retailers in the show notes, and as I mentioned at the start of this episode, 
pre-orders are vitally important to the success of a book so i'd really appreciate it if you did i'll be back next week with the first interview of the series but in the meantime you can find me on twitter and instagram at otega uagba that's o-t-e-g-h-a-u-w-a-g-b-a see you next week